So what do you think of that for a title for a sermon right there? Let me introduce you to a liar. Um, that's the kind of thing if someone said that to you, you'd probably want to turn around and walk right out the door, right? Um, but that's what I kind of want to do today. If you have your Bibles with you, or if there's one near you uh, in a pew rack, I'd encourage you to open to Revelation 13. And as always, there is a Bible app event for this. If you have the Bible app on your phone, click the little menu and look for an event near you. You'll be able to follow along the Bible text and also some of the things on the PowerPoint. So what would you do if you had a liar in your life? It could be anywhere. Maybe it's a guy at work, or maybe it's a woman in your neighborhood, or maybe it's someone in your immediate family or your extended family. Uh, and what, what if those lies are not just trivial lies? What if those lies are actually kind of dangerous lies? I mean, how would that affect your workplace? If he lied to your boss about the way you did your job, or if he lied about the things he did that he actually didn't do. Maybe you've had guys like that that you worked with? How does that change the workplace? How does it change your neighborhood? If there's that one person in your neighborhood that's always lying about all the neighbors and kind of seeming to want to stir up trouble in the neighborhood? Or what about in your family? What if you had someone in your family that was telling lies about you or about other family members? How, how would that work out for you? I can tell you this, just from my own experience, it can be almost uh, seemingly catastrophic. When there's a liar in your midst, it can make things miserable. It can lead to making the workplace awful. It can lead to making neighbors turn against one another. It can lead to really damaging and fracturing a family. How do you respond to it? I mean, if you have a liar in your life, how do you respond to that liar? I can tell you from my experience that confronting the liar doesn't fix it. Because when you confront a liar, usually two things happen. Number one, what you create is a more shrewd and careful liar out of that confrontation. The liar who's confronted doesn't say, okay, yeah, I need to stop lying. He says, I just need to be a little more careful about how I tell my lies and a little more tricky about how I bring them across. You just turn them into a better liar unless God's at work. The the other thing that happens is sometimes they become more aggressive in their lies. And if you happen to be the one that confronted them, now you're in their crosshairs. And you will find yourself being lied about. I tell you that from experience. And so because of that experience, my go-to method when I know that someone is a liar is to avoid them at all costs. It's just what I do. So I'm at a gathering and I know that that person is a liar. I sit way down at that end of the gathering. I just don't want to be around them because I know they're going to say things that just aren't true. In fact, some people tell lies when the truth would be easier. You know those people, right? And then beyond that, beyond that, I know that whatever I say is fodder for them to stir around and recalculate and readjust and rephrase into a way that they know doggone well, I didn't intend it that way. So my go-to method is, if I know someone's a liar, I'm just gonna stay away from them. And that works with a lot of people. But it doesn't work with the liar. (laughs) You have a liar in your life. So do I. And my go-to method of trying to just avoid him doesn't work because he is the dragon that we read about last week. In fact, in John chapter 8, when Jesus is speaking to a group of religious people and he's kind of letting them know that they're not getting it, Jesus says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. And then Jesus says at the end of verse 44 of John 8, when he lies... He speaks his native language, for he is a liar, and the the father of lies. Jesus knew how to turn a phrase, didn't he? When he lies, he's speaking his native language. Satan is a liar. 
We're going to see that in our passage today, and we're going to see how that relates to us today. Uh, I'd like you to look at chapter 13 of Revelation, follow along silently. Let me just give you some, uh, you know, tags to put on the people's names here, or names rather to put on the people that are here. It's going to talk about a dragon. If you were here last week, you know that's Satan. The Bible clearly says the dragon in Revelation 12 and now 13 is Satan or the devil. There's going to be a beast that comes out of the sea. It's almost as though the dragon calls him out of the sea. And that beast is someone that other places in Scripture let us know that's the Antichrist. And if you've studied the Antichrist or heard about it, or God forbid, watched movies from Hollywood about it, none of those are true. I had a kid one time say to me, Pastor, I saw a movie that everyone in your church should see. It's about the Antichrist. And it was, I don't know, some horror flick. That's not where to get your theology, right? Just saying that because somebody here might not know that. But if you've studied about the Antichrist, this is him. He's the first beast. And then there's the second beast coming along. Think of him as the false prophet. Uh, He's there to kind of support the work of the Antichrist. And of course, there's a lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And that would be Jesus, our Savior. So those are the people here. So let's go ahead and read Revelation 13. Follow along silently as I read. Verse 1. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. 10 crowns on its horn, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beasts seemed to have a fatal wound, but, and listen to the phrasing here, the fatal wound had been healed. I just want to say, fatal wounds don't get healed. That's why they're fatal wounds. Interesting, right? Keep reading, the middle of verse 3. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months, it opens its mouth to blaspheme God and slander the name, his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nations. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those whose name have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone goes into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is killed by the sword, with a sword they will be killed. This calls for patience, endurance, and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. And it made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in the full view of people. Because of its signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, 
to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number of a man. That number is 666. Okay, let me talk for a minute. (laughs) I'm going to talk for the next 20 minutes, right? We're not going to try to figure out how this applies to us in terms of the end of the age. Do you understand that? It has an application to those who are living in the end times. Absolutely. I think that if you read God's word and make yourself familiar with God's word, then when you come to the end of the age, that will be self-evident. And you're going to be like, oh, (laughs) that's the beast. I get that. I know that guy. I've read about him. So we're not going to try to see how this applies to the end of the age. Because I don't believe the book of Revelation, even chapter 13, only applies to that last generation of human history. I think this applies in 2019. I think this applied in 1812. I'm just picking that because there was a war then, right? I think it applied in 1776. I think it applied in 1492. And none of those generations were living in the last days. They may have thought they were, but they weren't. There was an application, though, for them that didn't necessarily have to do with the last days. It had to do with their hearts. It had to do with their understanding of who the enemy was and how they should respond to the enemy. And it applies to you and me in the same ways. Part of the big application is just understanding and exposing Satan's lies. Because we just read Jesus saying in John 8, 44, that whenever Satan speaks, he's speaking his native language, which happens to be the language of lies. He's a liar. He was so from the beginning. There are several of them that we can see right in this passage. For example, if you are discerning, you will see that in this text, we are learning, again, that Satan is trying to usurp Jesus' place, God's place. He's trying to say, I am the supreme triune God, of scripture. I mean, just read for a moment here. Look at verse one again. I'm not going to drag you through this whole passage, but I want you to just get a feel again. The dragon stood at the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Okay, so the dragon is almost like he's poised to bring this beast from the sea. It is almost as though the beast is coming at the beck and call, or at the, at the behest of the dragon. And then he goes on and says about the horns and so on, how he resembles a leopard, has feet like a bear. He goes on to say one of the heads is severed or wounded and people are worshiping the dragon who had given authority to the beast. And then later you read that, that that beast gives authority to the second beast. And what I want you to see from this is that Satan is really posing, depicting himself as the triune God of scripture, a kind of a counterfeit, Trinity. Okay, so let's talk about the Trinity. Let's put on our theological thinking hats for just a minute, okay? I really try not to tax your intellectual abilities real hard, but uh, do it for me, okay? Follow along here with me if you would. The real Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Son, we understand he is the incarnation of deity. He is sent from God the Father. He said he is the one who sent me. He says that. And in Colossians, it tells us that in Jesus, the fullness of the deity dwelt in bodily form. And Jesus tells us, I only do whatever I see the Father in heaven doing. I'm from him. I'm here in the flesh representing the deity. I am the deity in the flesh. 
God the Father sends his Son in the person of Jesus Christ. And then God the Son, when he's ready to leave, you remember Jesus is leaving his disciples, and in the Gospel of John, he says, I won't leave you as orphans. In other words, I'm not going to leave you without somebody to take care of you. I will send another counselor, the Spirit of Truth. And so he sends the Holy Spirit. So there you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. That's the real Trinity. But in this passage, we see a counterfeit, a lie. Because we see Satan standing at the shore of the sea, bringing forth this first beast, this incarnation of his will and of his person. The first beast you could think of as the incarnate image of Satan, and he does whatever Satan tells him, and he receives his authority from the dragon, from Satan. And then shortly thereafter, here comes a second beast, and the second beast is the one who gets the people to worship the first beast and the dragon. And so here the second beast is doing, doing that which the dragon and the first beast desire, and what you have is an unholy trinity. You have a counterfeit trinity. You have a lie from the liar. And so you see that Satan really wants to take God's place. And he's trying his best to fool you, to lie to us, that he is the supreme triune God of Scripture. This is in accordance with the false resurrection that happens. Because we read about that in verse 3, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. Now, there's a lot of speculation about that, but the bottom line is that the second person of Satan's unholy trinity seems to die and then comes back from the dead, like the second person of the real trinity, Jesus, who really died and was cold in the grave for three days and came back from the dead. Do you see what an imposter he is? Do you see how he's, he's imitating him, even imitating God's power? Because the people are worshiping the dragon because the dragon gave authority to the beast and they, they worship the beast and said, who is like the beast? I mean, who can make war against him? So he has real power, but here it's false power because it's not from the triune God of heaven. It's real because things are really happening but it's false because it's nothing compared to the power of God. Now hear this. The reason people fall for this fake power, I think, is because they've never really experienced the mighty power of God. And when you've never experienced the real thing, well, it would be very easy to fall for the fake thing. You know the story, they say that bank tellers, back in the day anyway, that they, whenever they wanted to teach them how to recognize counterfeit money, one of the mistakes they made was they gave them counterfeit money. They found that when you handle counterfeit money as a teller, then you're less likely to notice the counterfeit money because you become accustomed to the counterfeit money in the training. The best way to recognize counterfeit money is never touch it, and then when it comes across your door, you're like, this isn't real. It doesn't feel like what I touch every day as a teller. The way to recognize the counterfeit of Satan is to be thoroughly acquainted with the real thing, the real power of God in your life. And not the imitation power that makes these false boasts. <laughs> the beast, that says in verse 5, was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and exercise his power. Proud words. It kind of reminds me of that eight-year-old boy. You know, it's always just running his mouth. I got a 12-point buck last year. You were seven last year, right? But that's what he's doing here. He's lying these foolish, foolish boasts. And really, <laughs> this whole lie, I am the supreme triune God of the Bible is a lot like the very first, first lie. 
His second lie is even more like the first lie. The God of the Bible is bad. He does not have your best interests at heart. And you know that's what he said in the Garden of Eden. He said, you know, the reason God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit of the vine is because he knows if you do, you'll be like him, discerning good from evil, and God's holding out on you. There's something good in this fruit, and you should go ahead and eat it. The fall of humankind can be traced to this first lie, to this present lie that we're looking at, rather, that the God of the Bible is an evil God. And, and when someone says that God is evil, that's blasphemous. Uh, you know, I, I see that in verse 6 when it says, he opened his mouth to blaspheme God and slander his name. Think about when someone slanders you, they're saying bad things about you. It's a slanderous thing to say, you know what, he's cheating on his wife and you're not cheating on your wife. And so that's what Satan is doing. That's what the beast is doing, saying bad things about God. He wants you to feel like the God of the Bible, the real God, is evil. And along with that, he tells a third lie, it is me, it is I who am worthy of your devotion. And this is a lie that he really wants to work. This is a lie that Satan wants to work in your life today. The beast, it says in verse 7, the beast wars against the people of God. It was given power to war against God's holy people and conquer them. And then the dragon gives him authority over humankind, the latter part of verse 7, and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And as a result, he receives worship from everyone except the people of the of God. Verse 8, all the inhabitants of the earth worship the beast, those whose name have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. So the unholy trinity, that's what he wants. He wants your worship. He wants to distract you, to lure you, to pull you away from worshiping the one true God so that you will worship him. And in his lies, he targets our weaknesses. He preys on our weaknesses. I got a call the other day from the IRS. I might be in trouble. <laughs> it seems that my social security number has been involved in some sort of fraud or misconduct. The man on the other end of the phone wanted to have all my bank account numbers so that he could investigate this. He was with the IRS. You know that's a scam, right? If you don't know that's a scam, let me tell you, that's a scam, <laughs> right? And I just laughed it off. I just put down the phone, right? Here's what amazes me. It amazes me that scam works. You know, because that headline comes across my newsfeed all the time. Don't believe this scam. All the time. And plus, who thinks that the IRS needs the numbers from me? They know more about my finances than I do probably, right? So yeah, who in the world would give out that information to the IRS? I can tell you who would give it out, the uninformed. Or let me say it this way. Let me just tweak that word uninformed a bit. The under-informed. Do you understand what I mean by that? I mean, they're not entirely oblivious to what's going on. They know there is an IRS, so they're informed, but they don't know that the IRS doesn't do things like that, and they don't know that there are bad people who are doing stuff like that. And people who don't know, they're under-informed about these things, fall victim because they are uninformed. Under-informed. Being under-informed, that's a weakness. And in relation to Satan, being underformed is tragic. It's a weakness that he looks at. He targets us when we don't know Scripture, when we don't know the Bible. 
You know, I grew up in a church that spent a lot of time talking about Scripture. This church did the same thing. Reverend Westover had a series he did years ago uh, in the evenings about the Scripture and spent weeks and weeks and weeks on that. And we've done it in small groups here at Kermansville Alliance. Thursday mornings and Sunday mornings, different small groups have done that stuff. In the church I grew up in, it happened a whole lot. And I can remember as a little boy thinking to myself, I just don't know how this is ever going to work because we all know. I mean, we've all read Revelation. We, we know this is coming. How could people ever fall for the dragon or the beast? It doesn't even make sense. Even if it doesn't make sense now about the book of Revelation, when we get there, people are going to be able to put this stuff together and Satan has no chance. Here's what I was missing. Here's what I was missing. People won't be able to put this together because they're underinformed. They won't be able to put this together because they don't know scripture and they will fall victim to the lies of Satan just like people fall victim to the scam from the fake IRS guys. Listen, even if the return of Christ is another 2,000 years away, I hope it isn't. Man, I wish you'd get back here before I finish the sermon. Amen? But even if it's another 2,000 years away, knowing Scripture is not just helpful, it is essential for you and me in refuting the attack and the lies of the enemy. Ah, Pastor Steve, give me a break. Pastor Steve, come on. I can fight the enemy just fine. I don't need to go overboard and really study scripture. Really? Who are you again? Because there's this gentleman that I'm acquainted with that I read about in scripture who when he was dealing with the lies of the enemy, as the enemy said, Jesus, turn this stone into bread and then everyone will worship you. Jesus, fall from the highest pinnacle of the temple because he will give his angels charge over you. Jesus, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Every time those attacks came to Jesus, he answered them with scripture. He knew the scripture. Maybe you don't have to know it. Maybe you're slicker than Jesus. (laughs) That's silly, right? Yeah. You see, Satan pulls off evil, the evil that he does, because often humankind doesn't know any better. And the reason we don't know any better is because we don't spend any time in the Word or sufficient time in the Word and we're underinformed. It is a present-day weakness for all of us. And this weakness makes our second weakness even further, or even worse, rather. The second weakness is this kind of underlying fear that we have in our hearts that God isn't good. And I think all of us struggle with that from time to time. In my experience in helping people in our walk with Jesus, over and over again, I find that one of the best things I can say to them is, you know God's in your corner. You know that he likes you. You know that he loves you. God has this. God cares about you. You aren't forgotten by God. But there is this underlying fear that God isn't good. We don't say it that way. I mean, none of us say, I don't think God's good. I mean, right? But it comes out different ways. It comes out maybe just in our thoughts when we say, you know, if God is as good as I've been taught that he is, how come I'm having trouble with my finances right now? I really needed that raise, and instead, I lost that job. If God's that good, hmm. Or, if God is as good as the Bible says he is, then why is my family dealing with this? Or, if God is really good, why does that guy get away with that? And you see, in all of those things, there's this kind of underlying thing, underlying thinking that is just part of living in a fallen world and dealing with a powerful, lying enemy and just being a fallen person that kind of makes us wonder, is God really good? And when Satan sees that little smoldering thing in our lives, he comes along with gasoline and he wants to just light it on fire 
He preys on that weakness. He preys on our fears. He targets us. He targets our weaknesses. The scripture that we don't know and the fears that we have and even our devotion to other interests. If I've heard it once in the past several months, I've heard it a couple dozen times from people in our small groups. They'll say, biggest problem in my life is distractions. The biggest problem in my relationship with God is all the other stuff in my life that distracts me from my relationship with God. If you look at this passage in Revelation 13, you see there are two kinds of people who are worshiping the beasts here. One, one group is mentioned toward the end of the chapter in, in verse 15. It says, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so, people, the, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Okay, so there's, there's people there and they're worshiping the beast because they know they're going to be killed if they don't worship the beast. There's that group, right? That's not our problem. No one's holding a gun to my head saying, if you continue to worship the Most High God of Scripture, instead of giving your attention to these other interests, I'm going to kill you. No one's holding a gun to my head. I fall in with the second group of people that are mentioned in verse 4. In verse 4, it says, people worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worship the beast, and ask, man, who's like the beast? Who can wage war against him? I want to be on his side, they're saying, because he can make things, he really makes a cook here. There's a chicken in every pot with the beast. I want him because of the good stuff that I get from him. I voluntarily worship him because he has in mind my self-interest. Yeah, that's who I'm going to worship. And our own self-interests are often very self-centered and often very sinful. And they cause us, they cause us to be distracted from worshiping the one true God of Scripture. And the reason that Satan, the reason that, that, that Satan uses these lies is because they're so stinking effective. They are amazingly effective. He targets us when we don't know Scripture. He targets us with a fear that God isn't in our corner. And he targets us as well with good things that serve as distractions from the Most High God. So how do you respond to that? I mean, how do you deal with the liar who is in your life? You can't run away. You know, that's my go-to method. The liar's down at that end. I'm going to be sitting over at this end. I know what all you're going to do at the next church fellowship. You're going to say, where's Pastor Steve sitting? How come he's not sitting at my end of the table? Don't worry about that, okay? You can't do that with this liar. You can't run away from him. He just seems to, to be able to inject his false teaching, his false thinking into every, every aspect of our life. So what do we need to do? I say the first thing you need to do is realize the dangerous nature of the situation. There's a couple verses in the middle of this that can be taken a couple different ways. And you probably didn't even pay attention to them when I read it. You might have gone like, ah, oh, that sounds really confusing. I'll bet Pastor Steve won't address that because, you know, that's what I do. We're not paying attention to the time, time and a half time and stuff like that. Yeah, Pastor Steve's going to skip that. No, I'm not. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, he says, whoever has ears, let him hear. That's John's way of saying, verily, verily, I say unto you, pay attention. And in verse 10, he says, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity, they will go. If anyone's to be killed by the sword, with a sword, they'll be killed. Now, there's a couple different ways to take that. And I think maybe, maybe John means them both ways. But here's what I, what I want you to hear. I feel like what this is saying is, if you fall for this, if you become captive, captivated by Satan's lies, then into captivity you will go. If you fall for this, if you become captivated by Satan's lies, then into captivity you will go. If you're not careful, 
you will enter into captivity to him and eventually with him. You see, falling for the lies of the enemy of your soul is damaging to your soul. It can lead to spiritual death. How do you deal with this liar? Number one, wake up and recognize this is a dangerous thing. Number two, this passage tells me I'm going to need to deal with the liar in my life by pursuing wisdom from God. Now, I want you to look at the last verse again, verse 18. (laughs) Verse 18 says this. This calls for wisdom, period. Just end there. Because if you go on and read, let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for the number is a number of a man, the number is 666, you'll say, oh, so wisdom is being able to do math really well. Wisdom is not being able to do math really well. I studied engineering. I know those guys, some of those guys that can do the math really well can't remember to tie their shoes. Sorry, Milton. (laughs) But you know, it's true, don't you, buddy? (laughs) Yeah, he's nodding. Yeah. So it's not an ability to figure out, wisdom isn't figuring out who's 666. Wisdom is something different than that. Some people think that the wisdom has to do with identifying who the beast is. And there have been some really whacked, really whacked ideas of who the beast is. Some people feel like it was Ronald Reagan. Now, before you write that off, let me explain it to you as seriously as I can, okay? Anybody know what his middle name was? Who knows? Wilson. Wilson. Tom Hanks was looking for him for a while. I don't know. (laughs) How many letters are in Ronald? Help me out. Come on. Six. How many letters are in Wilson? How many letters are in Reagan? There you got it. That boy's a beast if I ever heard of a beast, right? (laughs) Ah, you're laughing. You're laughing. But did you not notice in verse 2 that it says he has feet like a bear? Have you ever seen Reagan's feet? Neither have I. But here's what I know. Reagan decided to make California his home state. And have you seen the flag of the state of California? It's called the bear state. That's starting to get serious now, isn't it? Right? Yeah. Yeah. We're not done yet. Reagan, he survived a mortal wound. Remember that? He was shot. He was shot, and he lived. Ah, yeah, now we're really cooking with heat. I got one more for you. Do you know what the address was where Ronald Reagan retired? I'm going to read it to you. Here it is, ready? 666 St. Cloud Road. Ah, there it is, right? Yeah, he's got to be the Antichrist, right? Except for a couple problems. Number one, he never blasphemed God, at least not publicly or regularly, right? Number two, he wasn't succeeded by Christ. Number three, he's dead. So that's a problem. That's a problem. Here's another one. Mikhail Gorbachev. You know, he spoke of a unified world. He had this phrase he used, new world order. Man, if that doesn't sound apocalyptic, what does, right? The new world order is coming. And, uh, (laughs) And he had a worldwide charisma that no Soviet leader ever had since or before or since then, right? And he had that mark on his forehead. Did you see that? You can see it in the picture there, right? I can remember looking at that mark, reading about how people thought he was the Antichrist. I could not find a six in that. I was looking for three of them. I couldn't find one of them. Had a couple problems. He didn't tell people to worship Satan. And, um, and uh, another thing, well, he lost the Cold War. And I would think better of the Antichrist than to lose the Cold War, right? And, uh, yeah. How about this guy? Some guys think it's Nero, right? And people who play with numbers can make his name correspond to 666, just as well as Reagan's, maybe even better. He did persecute Christians, so there's that. That's a big issue. Very popular. He didn't make people worship Satan, though, and he is dead. So, yeah, and if we're in the post-apocalyptic era right now, I don't, I don't get it. 
I don't get that at all, right? You see, verse 18 isn't telling us, have wisdom, do the math. Verse 18 is saying this, pursue the wisdom to discern truth from error. Try to understand how to discern the lies of Satan when they come along. (laughs) Don't believe the liar. And that pursuit comes when you inhabit the Word of God. When you study it, make it part of your daily routine. That wisdom comes when you walk closely with God. Spend time in prayer, talking to Him, asking Him for wisdom. And that wisdom comes from being with the people of God, hanging around the people of God. This passage simply reminds me that we need to prioritize our devotion to the one true God because nothing else is worthy of our worship. No other distraction should hold that spot in our life. God is God. He needs to be the focus, the priority, the number one place in my life. Because any time that something else gets that position in my life, I am letting the cosmos know that I have believed the liar. Any time that anything else, if it's the Steelers who I love, if it's the Penguins who I love, any time that that becomes the big thing about Steve Shields, then everyone should know Steve Shields is believing the liar. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have other interests. You understand that? It's good to be a Penguins fan. It's a little iffy to be a Steelers fan right now. Okay? And it's good to have hobbies. I happen to like firearms. That's cool. And it's good to have family and be concerned and interested in your kids and encourage them to participate in things. But when I allow any of those things, whether it's the cult of sports or the cult of my hobbies or the cult of family, I am, I am believing a lie when I allow them to usurp the place of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. What would you do if there were a liar in your workplace? What would you do if there were a liar in your neighborhood? How about a liar in your family? There's a liar in your life. You can't run from him. You can't shut him out. (laughs) What you need to do is through the power of Christ, take him seriously. Realize the danger. But don't be afraid of him. But don't trivialize him. Don't ignore the liar and believe his lies. Realize the danger. Number two, deal with him by knowing God's word. Study the word of God. I have hidden your word in my heart, says the psalmist, that I might not sin against you. And number three, prioritize your devotion to the one true God. I want to pray that we could do that. So let's unite our hearts in prayer. Would you stand with me as we do? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the way, the truth, and the life. We are thankful that Jesus doesn't just tell the truth, he is the truth. And when he is present in our life, we have access to the very wisdom of God. Help us recognize that we live in a dangerous world and there is an enemy who would lie to our soul. Help us to see the reality of that. Second, help us pursue wisdom from your word. in in our church family, in good Christian literature. And third, help us prioritize our devotion that we are devoted to the one triune God of Scripture, to you, 
For it's in your name, God, that we pray this. Amen.